Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Arborish Gym on the Anchor FM app. And welcome to everybody that's listening to it also on Apple Podcast and whatever other podcasting app that you guys like to listen on. Just like to mention really quick that if you do listen on the Anchor Podcast app, that it's more of a community-based type app. So you're able to actually write back or even leave a voice message that only I can hear um, in response to any of the episodes that we have, any of the subjects that we talk about, or if you have a question, or if you have something that uh, you would like to have as a conversation piece in a future episode. So check out the Anchor app as well. And hopefully I can start building a uh, nice little community of all of us in the uh, Delaware River Valley area. Today's topic is one of interest that is going around due to timing of the area right now in our season. And that is we're starting to see insects come up on our roses, on our uh, jap maples and a variety of other plantings that we have around our properties. But we're starting to see them eating the leaves and skeletalizing the leaves and eating the flowers and things of that nature. Uh, one of the big ones that a lot of people are concerned about is the Japanese beetle, which of course we all know can do some pretty destructive damage to our roses and our Jap, uh, our Japanese maples. So the big question is always, well, how do I control this? What do I do? And there's a lot of myths out there. There's a lot of um, misunderstandings out there uh, of homegrown remedies that have just, for whatever reason, stood the test of time. Grandmom did it, her mom did it, your mom did it, so you do it type deal. And of course, it's gotta be right. And a lot, a lot of times we just trick ourselves into believing it is right. One of them would be using your dish soap to just spray down your plants. So if you think about dish soap, um, and what I mean by that is you'll dilute it into some water, put it into a spray can, go around and you'll spray your, your whole area that's being affected and uh, the whole plant. But dish soaps are a chemical, right? Basically a bunch of chemicals together and uh, it's able to break down oils, greases, uh, dirts, things of that nature, and wash it away off of your plates. So if you think about putting that onto your plants, your plants have that cuticle on the top, a natural waxy layer on their, on their petals, and, or I'm sorry, on their leaves that protect it from exposure to heat and losing water um, it also protects it from gaining too much water and natural pests that come along, things of that nature. So when you spray, you know, Dawn onto your, onto your leaves, it's effectively washing that layer of cuticle off, that waxy layer and those oils off of the petal, the oils off the petals and the wax off the, uh, off the leaves. And that leaves your plant open to anything that can otherwise be, you know, uh, protected from entering your plant or destructing your plant. And what that also does is that when your plant recognizes that it lost the defense, it puts a lot of energy into trying to 
redefend itself. So I seen one comment on Facebook that said, you know, I do that with my with my roses. I spray soap onto it, and I notice that you know there's there's not as many bugs uh, afterwards, and also the leaves are a lot greener. Well, they're a lot greener for a reason. The the leaves are now trying to compensate for losing a protective barrier, so they're going to try to push as much nutrient out into that leaf to reprotect itself and by doing so it's also gaining a thicker greener color it's not always a good thing um, there are times where we would do that with trees where we'll artificially slow down or chemically slow down the growth of a tree for one reason or another and you'll notice that the leaves will get a lot thicker or, or a lot greener it's because we did something to affect that to happen not always a good thing though if you're doing something negative and the, the plant reacts that way but a lot of people so when you go to your a good example is when you go to your your home garden centers your lows or your, your local flower centers and whatnot they when a lot of the especially the big box companies quote unquote i'm air quoting big box companies get their plants they're sent to them with um uh, basically like injections that will slow the growth rate the growth rate inhibitors um, and it keeps your plant or the plant at the, the nursery really tight but it also keeps it really green and full of color and but tight now it looks great to you the customer but in reality the plants stressed and then once you get it home and you plant it into the ground and you know, a month later, you it looks like it like took off. Well, that's because all the growth rate inhibitors have basically worn itself out of the plant, and the plant is like taking a collective big breath to breathe again. So this way, it can start growing, it can start handling itself in the way that it's supposed to. So when you're when you're spraying the the, the home soaps on there. And it's it's kind of stunting one thing and pushing another thing and it to the to the eye it looks great and you may make yourself feel as though you're you're stopping the insect issue and in some cases you might soft body insects breathe through their back they don't breathe through mouth parts like you know a lot of people may think they do so if you spray a wax on them yeah you're gonna kill off them somewhat but your Japanese beetles, you're not going to kill off at all. You may have discouraged them a little bit from coming, but in reality, you most likely just didn't have many there to begin with. So what is a good way to discourage? Let's go with the topic of Japanese beetle or aphids. Now, aphids, people will say, well, you know, if you go go ahead and you purchase a box or a bag of ladybugs, they'll go ahead and, and they'll eat them up. The problem with buying ladybugs, especially in our area, is that they're coming from a complete separate part of the country, most likely the Sierra Nevadas. And there's people that'll go, they'll vacuum them up out there uh, when they're in hibernation and at that point, they're nice and fat and they're, they're lazy because they're in hibernation. They're, they're stored up on nutrients and, and food to keep them alive during their hibernation. 
And then those people will take them from the vacuumed up stage and they'll put them into a refrigerator to keep them basically dormant, thinking that, you know, it's still cold out or winter. And then they ship them to you. And then when you release them, they're, they're fat and lazy. They, they really don't want to eat anything. They're still in a dormant stage. And they found that they did this, they did this research where they marked all these ladybugs and they, they did it like they normally would. You know, they, they vacuumed them up, they put them in the, free, or the refrigerator and then they released them somewhere else, somewhere else. And what happened was they noticed when they went to observe the ladybug population on that property, a regular sized property that the majority of the ladybugs that they found, like the vast majority had no marks on them. All of the ones that had the marks on them basically flew away. You got to remember, you, you got to open property. It's not like, you know, you live in a bubble. These things can come and go as they like. So when you buy these things, if they have no reason to be there, they'll go somebody else, somewhere else. And the ones that you have left over, the ones that were naturally there anyway, that's, that's where they populated that. That's where they want to be. So there's no reason to go ahead and buy ladybugs to try to take care of your aphid issue because you're just going to end up more or less really wasting money. And also there's, and it's more on the professional side, there's a, there's a, there's a big issue with actually going into the woods and just vacuuming up any insect or anything for that matter and then bringing it to another portion of a country or a, a world. Um, I mean, there's laws against digging up plants in public woods and bringing them somewhere else. You can't do that. So there's definitely an issue, not, not so much with the law, because for whatever reason, they didn't make a law against it, but they made a law against the plant part. They didn't make a law against the insect part, and they're kind of one and the same. So if you think of it that way, there's definitely a problem with that. Now, going back to the the Japanese beetle, one of the most popular things to do right about now is go out, buy yourself a Japanese beetle trap bag. So everybody's seen them, they, people hang them on their properties and it's got these pheromones that attract the Japanese beetle and they all collect inside the bag. You get a whole bag of Japanese beetle and you, you think you've solved a good portion of your problem. The reality is, is that even if you don't hang those bags where the plants that are being attacked by them are on your property and hanging on the opposite side of your property. Those Japanese beetles that wouldn't necessarily have even come to your property are now attracted to your property. And there's nothing to say that once they're attracted to the area of your property that they're just going to only be attracted to the bag. If they get to the plant first or they're passing by the plant, that's where they're going. They're, they're going to want that. Now, if they were able to somehow come up with a pheromone in that bag that only attracted the males, then we would have something because they want to be able to repopulate. But as of right now, it attracts male and female. So it just attracts more than you really wanted at your property and more than you really would have had anyway at your property. Now, on the flip side of that, if you have a massive property, a huge property, acres and acres of property, maybe, maybe at that point, 
I would say hang it on the opposite of your property, grab a couple bags, throw them up. Maybe you'll be able to track a little bit more away from the area of the plantings that you want. But still, you're taking a chance and it's kind of a waste of money. There's, there's better ways. And one of the better ways that um, I have been taught that I've seen happen and I know works is, well, first off, we'll go with the easiest one if you don't have that big of a problem. And that's just go with your hands and, you know, shake them off whatever is on there, collect them into a can and then throw them into the trash or, you know, kill them, however you want to dispose of them. But that's not always possible. And you want to take care of the problem kind of before it starts. So what you want to do is early spring, you want to buy yourself a box of beneficial nematodes. Now there's nematodes and there's beneficial nematodes. You want to get beneficial nematodes. What they are is basically this microscopic worm. You can't even see it. They're in the ground as it is already. Um, but you you want to you want to populate a little bit more when you have a bad problem of Japanese beetle, and what it is is that they they come cold in this box. You mix it into some water, and with a hose application spray, you spray it onto your yard or your or your flower bed, and it'll they they'll come active again. They'll go into the ground and they'll start searching out for the grubs, the, the Japanese beetle grub, when it's in the grub stage. And what, it'll, what they'll do is they'll swarm the grub and they'll enter through openings of the grub, so the mouth, the anus, what, whatever opening they can find. And they'll basically plant their bacteria inside the body of the grub the bacteria will then form into new nematodes and the ne those new nematodes will eat out the grub from the inside out and then when, once there's nothing left to eat they'll leave the grub which is now dead and search for more grubs now with that cycle happening you're basically stopping the japanese beetle problem before it even exits the ground and then also if you do have some Japanese beetle that decide to um, overnight into the ground again they're also going to be susceptible they'll attack them just the same now the best part about the the nematodes is that they also feed on other non-beneficial insects in on your property which is awesome so the other okay so the the other the other things that they will control and kind of like a short list here uh that i have in front of me is your weevils uh other beetle grubs that live in the soil including japanese beetle max schaefer black vine weevil your strawberry root weevil um they also take care of flea beetles um so, I mean, cutworm, armyworm, fruit flies, they, they take care of a good amount of non-beneficial insects that cause you problems throughout the growing season.
that is my my number one way to go when uh, people have these problems. Instead of trying to come up with your homemade solutions that you know you just try to trick yourself into thinking that it's working. It's kind of like a mind game. Like oh, I'm doing something good, and you're doing something bad. Now the nematodes that. The reason that they're beneficial, besides the fact that you know they obviously kill off the non-beneficial insects, is that they're not disrupting anything else. So they're not hurting your plant. It's not a chemical. It's it's, it's they're natural. They're there all the time anyway. You're just increasing the population to uh, really take care of the problem that you have. But they also they don't attack pollinators. So they're not going to disrupt bees, and more more importantly, um, they're not going to um, attack or disrupt the the big pollinators, which are your flies. Uh, there's a difference between flies and bees. Bees have two wings; flies have one. I believe maybe vice versa, but you get my point. Um, but they're not they're not going to bother with them, and they also don't cause any issues with you know other other animals in, in your yard that may pass through, birds, um, your, your family dog, your cat, they don't bother with humans. So, so there's no issue there. If you decide that you're going to dig into the ground afterwards, you're not going to have any problems. Um, so that, that's my way to go. You, you should see a, a big drop off within a week or two after, uh, after applying the, um, the nematodes uh, to your yard. And also, you might find out that you get um, less uh, less front yard or uh, grass problems, where the grubs have been eating away at the roots and things of that nature, um, and you, you might be seeing some bare spots. That'll take care of it as well. So it, it's beneficial all around. There's there's nothing really that you can say that is bad about them. So with all this said, if you only have a, a small problem with uh, with grubs right now in your yard and it's not really killing off a lot of things it might not be that bad of a thing just to keep them around when they're when the grubs are in your ground <clears throat> in your yard they do take care of a lot of the thatch issues with your grass as well so you know as much as they're not really beneficial they they do have small little hints of beneficial use for you so I have them in my yard, um, and what I'll what I'll do is I'll just spray um, the area that's affected basically around plants. <clears throat> I, I try not to overdo it. There's no reason to. Uh, it's, it's kind of a waste of money if you do anyway. So, I mean, next season you're going to have them anyway. It's not a cure-all forever type deal. So you know. Try to stay away from these home remedies. Um, they're, they're not really good. Oh, and stay away from your broad spectrum sprays and chemicals. You don't want to kill off everything. With a, with a broad spectrum like Seven or some of these other products that are sold at your big box stores, um, they will just kill off, they'll kill off the things that you don't want there, but they're also going to kill off the good things, the beneficials. And when you kill off the beneficials, the bad things will come back faster than the beneficials will. The beneficials may take a few months to come back, where the bad things, once the beneficials are gone, can repopulate twice as fast. So 
imagine that you're a store owner and you hire somebody to clean the store and they use a clean product that kills off everything in the store but this dirt and the grime come back twice as fast and now you have to go ahead and hire another person to help that first person clean because now there's twice as much so when you kill off the beneficials you're gonna have to work twice as hard now to keep the bad things away broad spectrum sprays and applications that's what that does that's why they're you know they're not really one they're not really organic at all they, they shouldn't be overused in your yard I'm not saying that they're all bad all the time I'm not putting a generalized you know cover to my 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 thought on that there are there is a time and place and there's definitely a a modest use for it but in my opinion when you can go a natural way of taking care of your insect problems or your disease issues that's the way you want to go first you want to try to eliminate um, or you want to try to to exhaust all possible natural ways first before going with a chemicalized way um, which has to be used in real real low dosages and let's face it a lot of us homeowners we're not sitting there being professionals at this we it's not our it's not our shtick so we're, we're kind of guessing even I guess and I do it for a living of what the what the amount that I'm gonna put down is you know it's like a little bit of a handful here but whenever whenever you you're doing it always use it modestly go go less than going more um, it would be my recommendation if you have to use a broad spectrum so really either water it down or if it's granular you if you think you need you know X amount go with less than X amount go with you know half of that or a quarter of that and start there this way you're not over overkilling everything that's even beneficial because you're just going to make yourself have to do way more work at the end all right so i, I hope that you know that that covers a basic way of approaching you know the insect problems that we're going to be having going along with our aphids and our japanese beetles and some of the other problems that we're going to be having as well our weevil issues, um, the other grub issues that we're gonna have, our fleas, um, our, our root weevils, our fruit flies, um, our stink bugs. Uh, so a lot of them can be solved just with beneficial nematodes. And it's real simple and not very expensive to, uh, to do. And you're gonna save yourself time, more importantly. Time is Time to me is what is the value of money. So if you can save me time, you're saving my money as well. And I, I deeply appreciate anybody that can do that for me. So I do not have enough time and I know you guys don't either. So the second topic I want to cover today is uh, something that I ran into this week at a customer's house in Newtown. We were called out there to, they had some storm damage to a horse chestnut tree or what they called a buckeye tree. They're from Ohio. 
It's all good. Same family of trees. I can understand why they said that. But they, they had some storm damage. So they had a little bit of a windstorm come through, I guess, a few weeks ago, and it blew one half of the top of this tree out. It was a co-dominant leader, horse chestnut tree, one side blew right out. And when it blew out, it exposed the fact that there was a good size section of hollow up in the canopy where it blew out. Now, it did appear after inspection that on the back side of the tree that there, there was an obvious other hollow further down in the main trunk of the tree, but it, you could also see what appeared to be a really old lightning strike. You had that distinctive line um, and where the tree tried to heal itself by uh, callus rolling over it, but it appears that you know over the years, this obviously happened a long time ago, that it just started hollowing out and uh, water was getting in there and causing its damage. So we went there, the crew went there to, to clean it up and I had to climb up into the tree and get some inspection photos and, uh, and get some visual measurements of how much of the sapwood uh, wall was left of the tree, um, how hollow it was, how far down it went and then assess the probability, in my opinion, that it was going to fail. And if it did fail, what kind of damage could that cause other than obviously damage of the tree? So let me set it up for you a little bit. As we're walking up to the tree, the, the main house is right there. The back corner of the house is where the tree is within fall range. So if the tree was to fail at the top, the top of the tree that's left was leaning towards the house. It was within the range to hit the house. If the whole tree was to uproot and fall over, definitely was going to hit the house. So going through my steps that I normally take, I uh, started sounding out the wood at the bot at the base of the tree. Uh, there was obvious hollow at the base of the tree. You could hear the echo. There was definitely a difference between the, the, the solid wood and uh, one side, one whole side of the tree that was just echoing through. So we knew there was hollow at the very base and we could also see from the old lightning wound that there was water that was seeping out. So we did know that there was an issue at breast height of the tree. As you looked up the tree, you could see the first large hollow in it where it looked like at one point um, it either ripped out, which I think it did. I think there was a large lead there that at one point it ripped out or something else happened. Um, and that to me most likely was where the lightning strike um, really took its first bit of damage. Going past that hollow, you could still follow the lightning strike um, path um, up to where the, the new damage was, where the tree uh, um, at this point had blown out for us to be called out there. Now it completely detached itself. The piece that, that blew out was on the ground and I was able to see inside to the tree and it was, you know, one of those typical things there, that at one point there was some uh, squirrels or something that were living inside of it. They had their nesting in there. So I, I pulled all that out uh, because I wanted to see how far it went down and if it entered where the union was for the other codominant stem that was now leaning or that it goes towards the house. And at this point was, the canopy of the tree. 
Uh, after searching in there, I did realize that, yep, it does, it does have a hollow that does make it into that section and it goes down further into the trunk. So I sounded that wood. It did sound semi-solid, but you, did, you could tell that in certain sections it was starting to hollow. And then keeping in mind and not being so hyper-focused just on that one spot, I wanted to sound out the wood of the, of, of the stem that was left for the rest of the canopy that was going up above now all of this. So there was a section that I was concerned about. It looked like there was a small branch at one time that either was self-shedded or broke off. And it looked like to me that it was starting to rot a little bit in that spot. So when I sounded it above, it was solid. But when I sounded below that spot on this stem, there was hollow. So now I know that there's hollow below majorly in the main uh, section of the trunk where the union comes together. I know that there's hollow above it. And I know that the trunk is hollow below. But there, there seemed to be a lot of holding wood still left, a lot of sap wood uh, to the wall of the tree. So after I took all this into consideration, it's within range, it does have a top that has hollow in it, um, and looking at the other horse, nut, or horse chestnut trees that are around it that have over the years, they're just old, they're, they're pushing around 100 years old, they, they kind of look in the same conditions. You know, a lot of hollow, but still a lot of good green growth. So I spoke to the, uh, the arborist rep that was there on site. He, you know, we bounced uh, thoughts and ideas off of each other like a good team would. And we decided that the best course of action, because they, were, they really didn't want to lose this tree, was to this upcoming winter, we're going to come back and we're going to reduce the top of the tree and try to take out some of the, the, uh, the larger bit of weight that's left in the very top. This way, the muscle wood that's still left will have less to have to hold on to, and hopefully it'll be fine like that. Now, we're going to probably take a good 15 feet off the top of this tree. This way, if that top blows out, one, it's not going to reach the house and cause damage. This is a, um, a bit of a historical home, old farm home, and uh, a little bit of damage to that is a lot of value um, that we'll be having to go to an insurance company. So keeping that in mind, um, we don't want the top, if that does break out, to have a good chance of reaching the house. But we also don't want to take the whole tree down. We know that that tree will still survive for a good long time, um, even in the condition that it's in with it being hollow. It's just how they are. Um, they, they tend to, well, if, if, you, if you know the anatomy of a tree, the, the inner wood of a tree is dead tissue anyway. It's there for support. Um, and then the sapwood, which is the outer tissue of the tree, is what supports the nutrients and uh, the water flow and things of that nature. So we, we know it's going to be fine with the growth. It's still providing shade too, and the, uh, the family really enjoys that. So after speaking with the, fa oh, with the wife um, of the household, she agreed that that seems like a good course of action. She was very happy that we didn't think that we had to go ahead and be really heavy-handed and take the tree down and give her some nightmare um, excuse at that point as to why the tree would want to come down. Uh, but you'll find that a lot of, a lot of arborists, you know, quote unquote uh, arborists, um, will do that. You know, they'll, they won't do an actual inspection. 
they'll just show up and they'll look up at the canopy from the ground of which you can see for yourself and they'll come up with a diagnosis. You know, you really got to get up there. You got to take some pictures. You got to you got to be able to really prove one to yourself as the arborist why you're going to do whatever course of action you're going to do. And two, uh, you, you have to do your due diligence. So you're given the best treatment plan and options to the customer, you know, and that's not always going to be something that's going to give you the most money in the pocket for the arborist, but it's protecting the customer um, financially. And it's also protecting the interest of what they want to do. They want to keep it. If they wanted the tree down, they would have called you out to take the tree down. If they're calling you out to see what they can do, it's because they care about the tree and they want to keep it. And that's fine. You know, you, you try to eliminate all reasons as to why you have to take it down at that point. And you, you come up with um, constructive ways to mitigate any problems that could possibly happen that can cause big damage. Um, and that's the, that's the path that you try to take unless there's absolutely no other option. But in this case, just because it was hollowed out, didn't cause any reason to have to take the tree down in reality. We, we can look around at the other trees. We knew that they were safe, uh, that they, uh, they'd been weathering the same conditions. So there are, they, that right there was our examples. And that was the course of action that we were going to take. Uh, but again, it was after careful thinking and, um, and looking at it, you really got to go up and observe the tree. And, and, uh, as the homeowner, if you're a homeowner listening to this, uh, you know, you want to make sure that that's what they're doing. You don't, don't, don't have a person show up and just look at something, um, that isn't necessarily always so obvious, especially if it has rot up top. You want to know how much rot from the ground. It could look like it's a complete hole in a tree, like a, a rotted out section of the tree. But when you get up there, you realize, no, no, it's actually solid. It just looks like that from the ground. So, you know, don't, don't take everything hook, line and sinker. Make sure that your arborist um, or your consultant is doing their due diligence, doing what they're either paying, you're paying them to do, or what you spent your time having them come out to do. Um, some people will do it as a free service. If, uh, if um, they're an actual tree service, they'll come out and they'll look at things for free uh, to give you a price to hopefully win a sale. Consultants, um, they might have a small charge of some sort. But uh, the, the, the good thing about a consultant too is that most likely they're not the ones that are gonna be doing any of the tree work itself. So when you're getting their opinion, you're getting a dead honest opinion. Um, I'll say 99% of the time. I'm sure there's some that can get some kickbacks or whatnot. But uh, if your consultant you know, gives you an opinion and thinks that you need work done, and you ask for recommendations and they give you a handful of recommendations uh, with reason as to why the recommendation is with those um, individual companies, most likely it's, it's a good solid recommendation. Now, if they give you one and that's it, and you know, that's all that they recommend ever, it's probably because you're getting a kickback from them. not saying that's a bad thing. could be a good thing, but um, you want to watch out for that type of stuff. I'm trying to you know, I, re I really want this program to be here to protect you guys as well. And uh, the more information that you guys have, the better you are with spending your money on something that you might not certainly know anything about.
So that, that was an interesting customer at the very end. Like I said, we didn't, we didn't remove anything. We're going to go back in the winter and we will, uh, we will end up taking the little bit of the top out of it to bring it down. Uh, and the reason we're doing it in the winter is because we don't want to take away the canopy right now and all the nutrients that it's using to stay as healthy as it can at the moment. Um, and we'll also be taking down one of their ash trees that's right next to it because it has emerald ash borer. And emerald ash borer will be a topic for another time because that is a, a ravaging monster right now in our area. That's going to do it for the, today's show of Arborist Jim. I appreciate you all listening. If you have any questions or any comments on the, today's show, please download the Anchor app if you already have it. And feel free to join the community and ask questions. And I will answer them as fast as I possibly can. And hopefully get some good back and forth with what you guys are seeing out there. Because let's face it, I can't be everywhere and neither can any other arborist. So problems that you see, we may not see. And that's how we try to prevent things from happening like the Emerald Ash Borer or like the um, Dutch Elms disease. The faster we know about something happening, the faster we can handle it. And the less spread that it's going to have and the less, the less impact it's going to have on the environment around us, which is most important. All right, everyone. Thank you again. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the next.